0: Hey, everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with David Granovsky, a entrepreneur, writer, commentator thinker and Gerard scholar and we're here today to talk about Gerard and everything he, he represents uh, Dave welcome to the podcast
1: well thank you for having me It's great to be with you here online talking about these issues they're very important very timely
0: yes speaking of timely let's let's zoom out why don't you talk about the moment when you first discovered Gerard and how that changed the way you thought about the world
1: I, I discovered uh, Renee Gerard Uh, When I was looking, I was never um, satisfied with the way some of the theological approach. I mean, obviously, theology is important. I'm a Christian, uh, but, you know, I was always concerned about how the way theological conversations around Jesus didn't scratch the itch for what I felt was intuitive to, you know, what Jesus was doing in his story and the stories that are told about him. And I always felt like, what is going on here? This idea that you know Jesus, in some you know theological and Christian circles, is kind of a disembodied deity. He's one that you you make certain mental assent, you you make certain mental propositional assents about him. Like, do you agree that he was uh, uh, born in this time? Do you believe he died on the cross? Yes. Do you believe he rose again? Yes. Right. Do you believe that he's God? Yes. Or, you know, all the different little uh, doctrinal mental checklists that you're supposed to make. And then, you know, and who do you say sorry to? Oh, Jesus. Okay. And then so you check that whole list off and then you put that deity into your pocket. And now you're entering into a kind of uh, social status, uh, a certain inside club that he gives you a ticket into. And it's like, you know, you kind of, you know, you're ready to go go to the afterlife, now that you're in the in crowd. And I don't think that's what Christianity was all about. I don't think that's what anything Jesus had really had to do with. And so it always bugged me that I didn't feel like whenever I read the stories that I saw with Jesus, when he's standing up against the crowd, when he's deconstructing human desire, uh, it felt very uh, down to earth and practical about understanding the roots of our conflict, understanding the roots of our social ordering, how we order our businesses, how we order our communities, how we order our politics, our neighborhoods, it had everything to do with um you know he says the kingdom of god is uh, you know within you all, right? So this it's not some place you go up into a clouds when you're gone, it's something that you manifest in community, this principle of a kingdom of heaven, right? And so I saw a very political Deeply political message, and I, you know, looked into Nietzsche and things like that. and I felt like Nietzsche was closer to understanding some of what Jesus was about than many of the great, you know, Christian theologians that I was looking at. And then I discovered Rene Girard. So I kind of came to Rene Girard through a political search because I felt like uh, I was starting to get this conclusion that uh, government is a religion. It's not like a religion. Oftentimes libertarians will compare government that, you know, look how religious it looks, you know, but it's actually like, it's not a a pejorative when I say this necessarily, but government is religion. It's a vestige of archaic religion in our modern times. And Jesus is the true atheist, in my opinion. Jesus is the one who says the emperor has no clothes, there is no God in the the God being government, right? And so that's not the only implication of Jesus. I I think uh, there is a spiritual component to it. But in my work, what I try to do is say, look, you don't have to share my Christian faith with me uh, to even engage in this conversation about Jesus, because the lens that I'm trying to take is an anthropological perspective of Jesus, which simply means, You know, uh, I want to study the origins of man, the origins of culture, and I think I agree with Rene Girard when he says that the Bible is the key to all knowledge, and I agree with that completely. And I think Christians oftentimes they have a theology of Jesus, which is the study of God, but without an anthropology anthropology of Jesus, they'll miss the whole point because Jesus calls himself the Son of Man more than he you know, there's a reference to a son of God title. And so if he's the son of man, and what he's saying is, you know, I'm the full picture of what it means to be human. So if you study his life and in the, in the way people record uh, the things that he did, you'll understand what it means to be human. And so I invite anyone, right, whether you're, because my job in this is not to try to show you, oh, you need to have faith in a religious sense. I'm trying to show you that we are more Christian than we could possibly imagine from an ethical and aesthetic standpoint in the West. And it has very important implications for how we work that out once we become cognizant of it. So yeah, the, the, the emphasis in my work is, is looking at uh, the kind of practical and ethical implications of Jesus and how imitating him can unlock so much of the Struggles and problems that we find in our personal lives, in our workplace environment, and in our political context.
0: And let's unpack the, those implications. If people deeply understood your work or had the knowledge that you had around around Jesus and around Gerard, what what would those biggest implications be in our, our personal and and our political lives? What would be different?
1: Well, you know what the the gospel writers are good at doing is showing how Jesus. Um, he deconstructs and he deconstructs the illusion of innate human desire. The idea that the desires that really, you know, ignite your passion are inherently yours. That, you know, you really desire that beautiful uh, Mercedes or whatever because you just intrinsically desire it. And what Jesus in the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament um, prophetic tradition that leads up to Jesus' life, they show you that your desires are mostly borrowed from your neighbor. They're borrowed in a kind of matrix of, of other people's role modeling that are kind of coming into your life, whether you like it or not, and whether you're, so you have role models in your life, and some of them you choose, and some of them you're aware of, and many others you're not aware of, and you don't choose, but they're all influencing you you can think of it kind of like you know celestial bodies or something and they all have a gravitational pull and as you come in contact with them you get pulled into their orbit so to speak and you kind of collect all these other uh you know desires that other people have around you that really you know if you chase after them it's like chasing after the wind because um they're not really objectively true they're not something from the fount of your heart your inner depth right the, Your desires for fame or fortune or social status or, you know, wealth, these different things are not inherently real. They're a product of human anthropology, the development of the human brain that makes it unique and different from the animal species. Uh, we have these supercharged brains that are able to copy and they're able to copy better than other animals. And we don't just copy like rote memory, like monkey see, monkey do but we copy what we perceive our neighbors desiring, what we perceive them uh, you know, motivated by. And, and that's where uh, all of uh, most of innovation and creativity is you as an individual kind of having a humbling moment where you can say, look, I am not the fount of all this unique stuff, but rather I have to learn to imitate the great masters in whatever field of knowledge or work or art that you want to do and then what you do is you you connect those dots in a more in a creative pattern that no one else is connected right so you have all these people you're borrowing from and i think innovation comes from being able to to connect a certain pattern of dots those dots being role models in a unique way that others have not imitated in that same pattern does that make sense
0: yeah and this is part of gerard's idea of mimesis right
1: Right. So, you, you, but the, the idea is that you know innovation is you, it's learning how to imitate certain role models in compounding together them. You know, com- compounding their modeling their insights into a a new pattern that maybe others had not seen quite how that connected I and mean, how that system worked.
0: Is this the good part of mimesis versus the type of mimesis that leads to conflict, or are they all connected?
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, usually this is what, we, you know, mimesis is just a part of, it's like breathing, it's part of what we do, there's a good way of breathing, there's a bad way of breathing, so to speak, if you're if you're breathing in the process of hurting someone and killing them, that's a bad, you know, but it, it's mimesis, it's just what, it is part of human nature, it's part of our human uh, design, and this, is, t- this tends to be on the more positive side of mimetic desire. I want to do great music, so I study the great uh, composers, I want to write great novels, so I, I read the great novelists, and I observe human nature, and I, I'm honest about my own desires, and that's what René Girard, you know, discovered mimetic desire in the works of the great, you know, uh, Western novels, where he noticed that they they had a moment where they kind of became humbled in the process of their work, where they realized that uh, so much of their romantic desires, the romantic individualist self that they had in their earlier works it becomes totally you know deconstructed and you get to see the triangular pattern of people you know in conflict over scarce goods and and in conflict for no other reason than because their neighbor wants what they have and it's kind of a magnetic think of it like magnetism you know the idea of attraction and repulsion and you know if you see someone in your life and they seem to have, or someone on TV or someone in an industry you're in, and you're like, man, hey, there's something about that person. It just seems like they have it. They've got it. You don't even have to verbalize it, you just feel that way. That's that magnetic desire, that's that mimetic desire pulling you, attracting you towards them, because you perceive them as different, as opposite, you know, as as having something that you lack in your being, right? And that's what kind of pulls you towards modeling and imitating people on a subconscious level so this this underlies so much of what we do in politics our business choices why does everybody have a crypto business why does everybody do a podcast why does you know why does no why is it fashionable to not talk about jesus right now like if i say jesus there are certain people in, in in any audience maybe in a in a in a public square that would say oh he's trying to sell me on religion right and and it's just because that's the mimetic i'm not saying that they're wrong for that i'm just saying the reason why that's more common is it's kind of a mimetic uh snowballing of of what people have kind of accepted to be uh true and not all of them have all thought out well maybe it's not religious you know maybe jesus is the true atheist that deconstructs what religion really is right so when i say religion i'm talking about in the root word uh, the root Latin for religion is to bind together and, uh, and and so and so to bind together is kind of my definition of of uh, i 'm using an anthropological you know way of looking at religion is what binds us together? What is the common transcendent cause that binds a people together in common cause? And usually, what religion results in is the violent expulsion of an other. And that, and that's what binds people together, and that's what Jesus is, and that's why I say he's kind of like a true atheist, because he does, he's he, if you imitate him, will help you learn how to, uh, you know, create community without violently expelling another or violently expelling uh, a common scapegoat or a common enemy in your in your
0: life, you know. And how do we get from mimesis, See, I'm imitating your uh, your pronunciation of it to scapegoating.
1: Well, when you, in, in the ancient context that, you know, uh, a lot of mimetic theory advocates and researchers, you know, point to is the idea that if you have scarce resources, if you have, um, you know, uh, only so much food or, you know, you have a, imagine there's a plague or there's a famine that's kind of tightening up resources, your mimetic desire is going to put you into conflict with your, your neighbor. Because mimesis can be positive when there's a win-win outcome for everybody, but when when things are tight, when there's scarce resources, or perception of scarce resources it doesn't have to be objectively a scarce resource. what happens is humans get into rivalry. That's where we get the idea of you know black, uh, bad blood or you know bad juju, you know, these ideas, it's there's bad blood in a community, uh, and it starts with you know little little things like you know I reach my hand to shake your hand and you pull your hand back and all of a sudden I'm I take offense I said what I just did a good speech and you didn't like it you know and now I give you an indication that I'm displeased with your bad behavior and then you look at that indication that I gave you and you in your mind you confirm yourself you say well that's why I didn't shake that guy's hand look how mean he is and so you do something back and before you know it there's a rivalry that's developed out of almost nothing, perhaps.
0: It's a, and, a uh, game theory. Game theory. What's that? It's like the defecting in game theory all the way down.
1: Yeah. I mean, and, and so you see that, that that escalation on both sides, and it snowballs. And I tell people, you know, when I was in high school, I remember, you know, like, I, I went to uh, a high school, and I remember there was like a fight. Or you could just imagine this, this scene in various contexts of life, but. We were seeing like a fight break out between kids, and and uh, it was in one table. And before you know it, I saw chairs flying from the whole lunchroom. You know, it's, it's like a contagion. It spread. I thought it was between two people. Maybe they were fighting over someone looked at someone's uh, girlfriend or whatever, but all of a sudden, it's like contagiously infecting the whole room. And you can feel yourself kind of magnetically attracted to it, because your adrenaline kicks in just by being in proximity to it. You don't just sit there quietly, like a in Zen and eating your food. You're just your heart rate goes. You feel kind of pulled in. You know, you're fascinated by the spectacle, but you're also it's repulsed by you know how it could go dangerous. And and that's why people you know swarm around fights and that kind of thing because there's a there's a human f- fascination with drama and, and and conflict. So you can imagine that you know, if human beings, if we're so imitationally driven, that uh, there has to be a a circuit breaker, there has to be a way to discharge that bad energy in a way, otherwise we wouldn't even exist as a species. You know, in animal species, they have proto-forms of scapegoating, you can see a little bit. I think, you know, you could say that that sometimes in some species like the bird, the smallest bird is the run, you know, and, and the mother bird and the other chicks just kind of peck at that little bird and let them die out in the wilderness. And, but but that's kind of a proto, you know, shadow of, of what we've perfected. But typically animals resolve their conflict. Uh, they have imitation, but they resolve it with a dominant submission mechanism. And uh, if you have an alpha wolf and he defeats the beta wolf, the beta wolf submits its neck for the alpha wolf to kill. And typically the alpha wolf will restrain himself. You know, they may kill each other in an accident during a fight, but there's no kill shot once the other, uh, you know, animal has submitted. But humans are not like that, right? And the Bible is clear. That's where you get that idea of the eye for an eye. It was an ancient way of trying to wean humanity off of its reciprocity going uh, wild. Because, you know, if you in the ancient community, if I came to your village and I, I killed your dog, you might come back to my village and kill my family. And then I'm going to be so angry, you know, I'll get a whole army together, a whole war party, and we'll go kill your whole village. And then the survivors of your village will hear about it, and they'll come up with a vendetta to always feud with this other group, you know, and, and you'll be doing that for generations. Isn't that what we see with the drug war right now, by the way? Isn't that what we see with most war and conflict zones around the world? It's it's this, you know, North Korea, South Korea, you know, uh, Palestine, Israel, All this, it's never ending. And so humans had to find a way to resolve this or else we wouldn't have existed as a species. And so as everybody's copying everybody and finger pointing and and pointing fingers and, uh, no, you're the problem, no, you're the problem, problem, no, you're the problem. It builds tension. It builds bad blood. And eventually, if everybody's imitating everybody's finger pointing, it's very easy for those imitational patterns of finger pointing to start slipping into one direction. And before you know it, they're all pointing in one direction, and they're typically going to point at someone who stands out in an arbitrary way that makes them kind of a different a differentiation from. I say it this way: in a sea of uh, amorphous, an, an amorphous blob of sameness, they're hungry for difference. They need to eat difference, right? So the whole community becomes an undifferentiated mob of uh, of reciprocal behaviors and desires it's almost as if the it becomes a hive and it needs to devour a vessel of perceived difference in order to maintain itself because undifferentiation left alone will lead to war of all against all and in a destruction of a community and so it's almost like they have to feed and that word pharmacos is helpful there right because it that's where we get the word for pharmacy and pharmacos is like the ritual that the Greeks would do where they would parade a hunchback or a deformed person in the community and cast them out as a kind of antidote, right? You know, Jordan Peterson's book, An Antidote to Chaos, that's the antidote to chaos, is the ritual scapegoating of a, of a common enemy. So, so, in a sea of sameness, when people just they don't know what is going on, maybe there's scarce resources of famine, they start to point fingers. It snowballs into aggression. It's building bad blood, and it needs to be. There needs to be bloodletting. There needs to be a safe way to get rid of this, this ugliness. And in that sea of sameness, devours a differentiation. Uh, a person with differentiation, and that person could be too ugly, too beautiful, could be the prom queen, could be uh, the dwarf, could be the uh, rich billionaire who colors his hair funny. It could be uh, a, a race minority. It could be a stranger from a, from a far off land. It could be a person with a handicap. And whatever it is that triggers uh, the crowd, the mob, to perceive them as different, um, it's enough to trigger them to uh, convince themselves together uh, that this person is the cause of their problems. And we know this is true. Intuitively, I mean, we can watch modern footage of uh, Tribes that are still in this indigenous environment, and you know, they'll talk about this person is a witch and they put a spell on our community, and that's why we can't get crops to grow, or that's why we had a death in the, uh, a child died in the community. And I mean, I have a friend of mine from Papua New Guinea, her name is Monica Paulus, and she corresponds with me all the time. And she had to flee Papua New Guinea actually, because uh, she to this time, ta- to, uh, it's To this day, uh, there is this uh, witch hunt practice wherein um, the community and the tribal uh, regions, um, they will get whipped up into uh, anger, uh, jealousy, or they see a, a, a child get sick or dies, and they start immediately looking for a witch. And sometimes if you yawn the wrong way, they think you're going let out a spell, uh, let out a demon or a spirit. And they target that woman. Typically, it's a woman. And then they burn them alive. And so Monica Paulus, I told her, you got to get out of Papua New Guinea. So she did. And thankfully, she's safe now. But that's an example of like Frozen and Amber, what we've been doing all around the world since the, the foundations of the world, since the foundation of human, you know, society.
0: And you mentioned earlier we were, we were talking about how timely this all this all is. Uh, so right. connect that back to today. You know, we connect that back to you know an era of Trump. You, you talk about sameness, but we're sort of you know connected to the era of diversity. Connect that to why it's important that people really understand that today.
1: Right. Well, you got You you have to understand you know how Jesus you know breaks that scapegoat mechanism, right? And he does it. He does it, and uh, so you scapegoat. So when a society scapegoats or or devours, because and I mean that literally, because ritual cannibalism is a ubiquitous feature of early primitive archaeological, you know, evidence of, of different uh, human cultures and human um, societies. So cannibalism is is evidence of what I'm talking about. Uh, you know, human sacrifice is. Um, Another early, early feature that we find in uh, human society, Gobekli Tepe over in Turkey, is this ancient, you know, temple-like structure with very advanced animal carvings that indicates that we've been, you know, participating in the sacred at the very beginnings of our community, not as some kind of after-effect, fanciful uh, moment of of fantasy, you know, that our... our, um, in terms of our myth making our myth making you know the the way the modern uh um, western mind thinks about myth they and 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 you know ritual religion is it's just a moment of fancy and a moment of control it's a time of you know just having an excuse to have power and control over people and make up fanciful stories to make make sense of of the seasons changing or what have you, but I would suggest that actually no religion. Is the placenta, as Rene Girard would say, religion is the placenta of humanity. It's what birthed us. It's what made us who we are as a species. It's what saved us from destroying ourselves. And so it's not. But but see what Jesus says, and he has that passage when he says, um, "I behold, I see Satan fall like lightning." Uh, you know, you you cannot import, uh, you know, some kind of neo. Uh, platonic or, you know, disembodied uh, red demon with red horns into that language. The word Satan means accuser. And so when he says, behold, I see the accuser falling like lightning, he's making an anthropological claim about what's happening in humanity and what his work is going to accomplish, which is the accuser. And that's that's how the scapegoat mechanism operates. It starts with an accusation. This person is guilty of infanticide. This person is guilty of incest. This person is guilty of witchcraft or whatever. It starts with an accusation that the collective unanimously believes, truly believes. And then it it follows with a murder or expulsion of the person. And when you murder and expel that person, suddenly you feel relief. You feel tension relief. And you've dispelled that bad blood. And so the problems between me and you, Eric, would be resolved because if you and I had conflict over, hey, I think you stole one of my chickens, and all of a sudden we see a witch is being accused in the, in the neighborhood, you know, right next to ours, we run over and we say, that's what was doing it. It was the witch. She put a spell and she probably took that chicken and sacrificed, you know, or did something, you know, weird spell with it. So we kill the witch and all of a sudden, hey, hey, we feel a lot better now. Uh, because that primordial killing of a life feels like a sacred act that we bound together around, right? And so that tension relief—that's what you get whenever you see you're getting vestiges of that. Whenever you go to a, a film in cinema and watch a movie, you know when you see Emperor Palpatine thrown down the uh, the shaft, right? In Star Wars, you feel great, don't you? You know, and I and I what I encourage people to do is. Jesus is the most important man in history. He split time. You count your time by him. So, you don't have to like get into oh, is he God or not, but at the very least he's perhaps the greatest man of history. And some of the greatest scientific discoveries, you know, hospitals that open up to anybody universally, no matter what your ethnicity is, no matter what your social status is, that we bring anybody can come to the hospital and get healing, you know, as best as we can in hospitals. That's a Christ, That's in, inspired by Jesus' role model. You know, all these different things, you know, stopping the practice of child sacrifice, uh, animal sacrifice, that's one of the first things that indigenous tribes abandon when they encounter the story of Jesus, when it's brought to them by missionaries. So that's another confirmation of, of, of the end of sacrifice that affects cultures whenever they hear about the story of, of Jesus. So Jesus had a, a very specific... Uh, intention, which was to get humanity to stop scapegoating each other, as the way we get we bind ourselves together, and to create a nonviolent, love-based, uh, binding together. So we're still going to imitate each other. We're not. Jesus is not getting us to stop imitate. He's saying imitate me, and and by the downstream effect, imitate other people who are imitating me, and lay down your right to exploit someone who you have leverage over in business rather than go for the throat lay down your life for in terms of your ego you know rather than to uh get vengeance on someone who hurt your feelings you know let go of your right uh to yourself uh, another way of looking at it is sacrifice the fear of your neighbor rather than sacrifice your neighbor so that would mean, you know, in a political context for our time, that means if you're on a jury uh, to decide the fate of someone who's selling drugs or selling unpasteurized milk or some other nonviolent thing, you have the right, uh, you have the choice, if you're imitating Jesus, to decide whether you're going to go along with the crowd, which happens to be your jury pool, and sacrifice your neighbor or show mercy and let them go so that they can go back to their family and work out whatever vice or whatever it is in a nonviolent context. That's what Jesus wants you to do. That's what he wants you to choose. It's not an ideology. Political ideology doesn't give you a radical choice. Political ideology is like, no, there's no free will. You know, you're, you're either, you know, you've got to go with the crew or you're, or you're out. But with Jesus, it's always a radical choice. The, the choice is, you know, to love your neighbor as yourself, which means to operate with an ethic of mercy and nonviolence and solve problems, the creative and hard way of working things out with, you know, persuasion and, you know, creative market pressures to get people to, you know, stop doing bad practices or whatever, or to use coercion and to use domination, which is the way of government, which is the way of politics. And so um, that's, that's where we're at.
0: That, that does make sense. It, it echoes a lot of what Jordan Peterson's been talking about, right? Make, make the sacrifice internal rather than external.
1: Right. You got to die to self, the mortification of the flesh. The mortification of the flesh is the realization that the things that seem to drive you um, most mad about somebody else is usually a reflection of something in your own heart that it's reminding you of. It's a mirror. So when I look at these people who are so terrified of Trump, I'm not a Trump supporter, but, you know, you know, I have to say this just to just to get the mob passions to to try to hear what I'm saying. Right. Which is the bad stuff about Trump is just a reflection of the ordinary steady state that most people have been voting for for their lives. Right. It's just a mere reflection. And so, you know, what I am interested in is, you know, why is it that his vulgar words and flippant language and, you know, playing with words in a way that's kind of uh, provocative and, and and scary or dark for people. Why is that worse than actual human violence? You know, uh, what the last administration's uh, both parties, what they did to Libyans was disgusting. You know, what they did to Syrians, awful. You know, what sanctions have done when Madeleine Albright said in the 90s on CBS, they asked her, you know, it's half a million Iraqis children dying because of the starvations caused by our sanction. Was it worth it? She said, yes, it was worth it. You know, that, why is that, right? You know, by the people who are supposed to be the um, curators of our culture, the New Yorker, New York Times, you know, these these elite institutions. Why is that sentence not nearly as, uh, as awful as uh, the things that, you know, Trump says about uh, someone's appearance. You know, who cares about name calling and gestures? That's awful, but who cares about that in comparison to human violence and murder and death? That's always in a, in, a, in a healthy, normal society, the protection of human persons to not be physically hurt is always first and foremost, the most paramount, uh, should be the most paramount moral concern, which is to protect the person from being violently hurt through government or whatever means. And so, you know, when people are so outraged about Trump, it's because, remember what I said, language conceals the violence. And all the past administrations and most of the politicians in Congress, they're still operating under the same politically correct language matrix, where if you say cool, smooth rhetoric, and you talk about how we're all in it together, and you use all the right language Uh, of, you know, diversity and all these different things, you can still lock people up by the millions. You can still bomb and sanction, starve millions of people overseas. And it's out of sight, out of mind, because it's almost like we get spellbound and hypnotized in groupthink, that mimetic groupthink lulls us into this false slumber when the rhetoric is smooth and cool and uh, victim-protecting, you know? And Mm -hmm. so when Trump says hey, I didn't want to go to Iraq. Wait a second. That would have saved a lot more lives than what Bush and, and Clinton did when they went into Iraq. Actually saved more lives if he actually went through with that. I'm not saying he would have. But he says, we, we shouldn't have been in Iraq. And then he says, but if we were in it, we should have taken the oil. And everybody says, oh my goodness, how dare he? You know, <laughs> he's, just, he's, just, he's just doing statecraft in a amateurish way. And it reveals the ugliness of government when he does that.
0: Because violence has been outsourced to the state. So how does that change how societies handle mem- memetic rivalry?
1: Well, again, I think the government is a vestige of religious uh, sacrificial cults that our are, are origins of our species came from. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 it's the transcendent that allows us to say, look, uh, I just saw in the breaking news, my local news, that a whole uh, drug house just got raided. How does that make you feel? I'm saying the average person that heard that, growing up in the 80s and 90s and so on, when that when the cops come and arrest that drug house, how does that feel when they hear that announcement on the news anchor? So that's the same kind of catharsis, the same kind of myth making in real time that news plays a role in doing, which is they 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 shape and they kind of validate. Look look at what your um, your transcendent society is doing. Now, the gods are still here, right? The gods, Odin, Thor, all those things. We just call them different things now. We call them the thin blue line. We call them the will of the people. We call them democracy. We call them a uh, presidential, acting president, you know, all these sacred language that we use. Um, but those are just ideological stand-ins for the same function that the gods stood in for, which is a transcendent way of of creating order, meaning, peace, unity, by sacrificing one for the for the many. And uh, Caiaphas, the man who the high priest who you know kind of instigates the um, killing of Jesus in his own time, he, he sums it up very transparently and radically so when he says, "It's better that one man die than the whole nation perish." And so whenever you hear on the news, this person got arrested, or, you know, this person did this or that, it gives you a comfort. You're driving on the highway, you see cop lights, they're coming fast. Oh, no, I'm, did I do something wrong? What did I do? All of a sudden, you see them switch lanes, and they speed on past you. Feels good, right? You feel a moment like, hey, I'm the the good guy, (laughs) you know, I'm okay, Oh, wow. Well, hope that guy's not too bad. Go get him. (laughs) I mean, who, whatever. You just feel a little bit of relief. That's unconscious catharsis from the the mechanism that government's supposed to provide. So, and I'm not saying government is like evil, you know, Uh, I think it is. It is evil in one sense, but I'm not, I'm not scapegoating it. Like, Oh, those guys, right. It's a manifestation of a culture that wants to dispel bad blood onto common enemies. And so my project is always to say, excuse me, the principle of the West was no victim, no crime. That's the foundation. That's the, at least the ideal of English common law. Uh, habeas corpus, you know, present the body is the idea that, you know, you, you have to present the person accused. You can't just put them in a dungeon without a trial. But it also has a mirror side to it, which is present the injured party. Who, who's injured here? Wait a second. You want to put someone in a kidnap cage? In the back of a car, and fly them off down the road, and, and, and warehouse them in a jail. Uh, Jails, oftentimes, by the way, you know, people always talk about prison. Jails, oftentimes, much worse than prison, and that's where most people who get caught up in the law for victimless crimes go. They go to jail. So even a week or two days in jail can be a traumatic, violent experience, and it's happening in every city, whether they're Democrat or Republican owned, and no one's really talking about it at its core root. It's very fashionable to talk about criminal justice reform, but it's, and that's a great thing, but it's always kind of on the nibbling around the edges, kind of like, yeah, we need to reduce sentences and stuff. And I'm saying, look at the fundamental, obvious nature of what this is for. This is a vestige of scapegoat violence. This, the idea of putting a nonviolent person in a cage with violent people, You know, that people, some who've who've just assaulted somebody and they're in a cage with the same person who's got a suspended uh, license plate, I mean, a suspended, you know, uh, 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 driver's license or uh, even the guy selling raw milk or the woman who's doing sex work with consenting adults and she wants to do it. They're all thrown into the same melee with violent people and uh, they have no recourse for defense. They can't escape that room. If they tried to leave, they'd get to a barbed wire fence with with people with guns. This is a very inhumane and barbaric, primitive way that's happening, and that's what's creating our political system today. It's always built on the backs of of hidden scapegoats, and um, René Girard says that to have a scapegoat is to not know you have one, meaning you don't know, you know, when you're scapegoating someone, you really think they deserve what you're giving them, right? And you really des- you really believe they deserve the treatment that they're getting from the collective. But once you start to see that this is barbaric and this is not appropriate to treat human beings this way, it loses its power. And when it loses its power, what happens? The community starts to lose its appetite to keep that law on the books. And when the community starts to lo- starts to lose the appetite to keep those laws on the books, the institution of government loses its ability to... Maintain its transcendence, its power, and its ability to bind people together. We have to learn to look for alternative solutions outside of politics. We have to learn to look for mercy-driven solutions, love-driven solutions to bind ourselves together. We have to glue our communities. Um, we have to glue our communities around nonviolent tolerance even for rich people. I know that a lot of people on the left, they're mad at the rich and they're rich themselves many times and maybe that's why they're mad. But they've got to learn to, they've got to learn to to love the poorest of the poor and the richest of the rich because in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of heaven, everyone's equal at the table, right? I am not a person who believes in just get rid of, you know, our institutions of sacrificial violence that government does and just be happy with the status quo. No. Obviously, um, the West has a lot of uh, true concerns. We all want a pollution-free environment, but I would say that if we would learn to stop looking towards politics and government coercion, then we would have the opportunity to look around, challenge the group think that we have about how the natural world works, for example, and we might find that we can create clean energy, too cheap to meter, without needing a single government subsidy or a single government, uh, you know, central command policy that would be so much more cheaper, so much more readily available for everyone. And I, and I actually think it would be a lot easier to do. But we're so fixated in our mimetic rivalry over the common object that we find scarce, which is political power, Right. And that's why half the country feels like they're living in hell right now because their guy is not in power. And they feel like they're being occupied by a foreign enemy, right? And it's because we're so mimetically rivalrous that it feels like we've just been conquered when when such a powerful government, you know, has this winner-takes-all, you know, system where it's like one team wins and they're just going to rub the other team's face in. It's like, no, no, no. The way out is to stop desiring the same object of your neighbor, of your rival, to let go of your desire for political power over your rivals, and to sacrifice your own pride and acknowledge that so much of the natural world that we think we know and we think we've figured out is so completely unknown.
0: I read this book recently, How Richard Dawkins Got Owned, uh, and it basically talks about how uh, he thought he was sort of uh, overthrowing Christianity, and yet he just—you know—you may have taken some part of it, but you—he's sort of Christianity by another name. Like he's—he's he's so you know invested with the ideas that it represents, he can't even see it uh, or see outside right.
1: of it. Right. You don't escape religion. That's what my point is. It's like if you're an atheist, you don't escape religion. If you believe Elizabeth Warren's going to save your life or Trump, you're—you're you're not. You're religious because you got to understand what religion is. They always make it out to be, oh, it's this fanciful metaphysical stuff. No, no, no. That's not, that's how they That's how they use that to justify, well, I am, you know, I believe in science. You know, I have these dogmatic beliefs and, and it's settled. No, it's not settled and there's no consensus. Consensus is the enemy of science. Uh, dissent, you know, courage to challenge hundreds of years of scientific inherited wisdom. That's what true science is about. And obviously, in that process, you're going to get uh kooks. And it's just like, you know, you're gonna you're gonna get wheat, you know. When you have wheat, you're gonna get tares growing up in the in between the wheat, right? You've got to separate the wheat from the tares. But that's the process of human creativity, that's the process of discernment, that's the process of being alive and freedom. It's not the process that you get with our one size fits all system today. And my understanding of anthropology has Corrected my understanding of the world of physics and downstream from that chemistry and downstream from that tremendous technological things that we could do in the market system. You know, Peter Thiel has a great line where he says, We haven't done anything in the world of atoms, right? We've done everything in the world, Uh, we've done all this innovation in the world of bits. Uh, You know, that's where all the innovation is taking place, but very little has happened in the world of atoms. And I would answer that by saying, we don't know what an atom is. That's why, <laughs> and that's for another co- topic. But, but it's just I just really want to sink in um, how this understanding of mimetic theory can really help orient us in how we have, conduct our personal lives, how we get along in the workplace. I've written articles about workplace conflict and how to resolve that, and how to set up an organization as a small business using memetic theory as a toolkit to avoid. Waste and avoid senseless workplace drama and uh, inefficiency, and then you can apply it to politics and understand why it's so wacky and weird and then you can apply it to to a, a more narrow scope, which is even bigger in some sense, like uh, how politics and government has retarded scientific development and it's not that these are intentional things it's just that human beings are more prone and more owned by groupthink forces than we possibly even can imagine and you don't just free yourself from groupthink but you have to be cognizant of how much blind spots we actually have as a society that if we would start to eliminate our sacrificial behaviors and start to look outside and say okay I'm not going to rely on a one-size-fits-all clean energy deal that will pick winners and losers for wind farms and solar panels and stuff. I'm actually going to just challenge the foundations of the atomic model. When I do that, I'll be able to uncover simple uh, opportunities of experimentation for radical clean energy technology that would not require us abolishing the last vestiges of a free market. And the same thing goes for healthcare. Why haven't we solved the war on cancer, right? Nixon declared in the sixties. Why haven't we solved that? Well, You know, in my research, because mimetic theory gives me this this prism to look outside of groupthink and look for those little Galileos that would be otherwise scapegoated if they tried to present too much, and I can look and see people like uh, a great team at England in the University of Salford, a guy named Michael P. Lasanti, who's using antibiotics, cheap, um, FDA-cleared um, uh, generic antibiotics like doxycycline, which is used for acne treatment, and azithromycin, which is called ZPAC, a common antibiotic people use. And he's using them in conjunction with vitamin C to have devastating effects against cancer stem cells. Now, that doesn't go within the paradigm of the genetic paradigm of cancer. That goes to something more like the mitochondrial theory of cancer. But because our systems of knowledge are severely slowed down by their protection by government financing, and what I mean by that is a monopoly financing mechanism at the federal, state, and local level, it shields these groupthink ideas about the foundations of something like cancer and redirects hundreds of billions of dollars into solutions that could be so much more costly and ineffective and toxic perhaps than something like an antibiotic. He's doing contrarian work and he's able to spot a solution right under our noses that's that's not toxic. Now, why would we need to talk about a political solution for diseases that we need to have single-payer health care when someone like uh, Dr. Lasanti and others that I can mention are solving cancer with non-toxic, cheap therapies,
0: let me ask you, how you square this idea, which I understand from from listening to you. It's actually Jesus' idea of the the first shall be last, the last shall be first, uh, which sort of implies, hey, we're all equal here, and if not equal, you know, the last shall be first, the first shall be last, and yet there are you know equal unequal outcomes and unequal contributions and and a lot of conflict stemming from people wanting to be seen as uh, as at parity. How do you sort of square that that, that Jesus' idea with, with with what's happening right now, and what, what should we do about it?
1: Well, he, he said, "Many who are first shall be last, and many who are last shall be first. So it's not the idea of some kind of absolute Marxist notion that everybody has to be you know like flipped or something, but it's taken to mean that way by uh, well-meaning you know people in social justice circles. Uh, who want to appropriate that kind of language uh it's you you cannot have there's Jesus is completely incompatible with egalitarianism in in that sense it's in a forced coercive sense it's completely incompatible with Marxist ideology, which I believe I think there's quotes from Karl Marx suggesting that blood is required to be shed to to move history forward that's completely incompatible because Jesus said it is finished when he. That was his climactic statement when he died uh, being crucified. He said, it is finished. What was finished? The sacrificial matrix that humanity had been using. It's still continuing, but it's, it's, he lodged a sword into the heart of the machine and it's fail It's falling apart. The longer uh, cultures are steeped in the story of the Bible. It has this technological effect wherein it starts to, it's like a, it's like having a flashlight. And if you have the stories of the Bible, it, Obviously, the church has misused those stories, by the way, and they haven't got it. That was kind of the point when Jesus said, uh, uh, you, re- you know the scriptures, but you can't even see me. You can't see me. You can't see what I'm doing right in front of you. That's kind of a wink, I think, a metaphysical wink, Some uh, you know, like a meta-text wink at the audience who, who is most inclined to read the text, including churchgoers. You know, you, you're reading the text, but you don't get me. You don't see what I'm doing. Imitate me. Be me. Be me in your context of your group think. Be the courageous guy who loves your neighbor as yourself when everybody around you says, destroy that uh, Democrat or destroy that Republican. Be the guy that says, no, I see myself in the other, and I and I have the choice to 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 go across the enemy lines and to love him as myself.
0: Specifically, as it relates to a foreign policy perspective, you know, what would the Gerard Jesus uh, foreign policy be of, of 2019? Because you know, as oppressive as our governments are, you know, you know, Russia, China, et cetera. And, and you know, there's a specter of Hitler, you know, 70 years ago and, and the, the, the quote unquote lesson that people have learned about the dangers of appeasement. How do you make sense of that?
1: Well, again, it's, it's all reciprocity. You know, if you, if you initiate, in my opinion, sanctions, it does nothing but it starves the population that you're trying to allegedly liberate and it emboldens and draws them into the hands of their foreign of of their local leader so and and we and we see that it tends to backfire and it's again it's not something look it's not like the sacrificial mechanism of politics it can get effects i mean it's not like they haven't done anything they can achieve stuff and there can be some good but that the overall framework is a net evil because again Whenever you say, well, let's sanction Iran and literally starve out their citizenry until they like um, just put so much pressure and revolt. That that's saying that human flesh is cattle, that's saying that we're nothing but a, a jumble of atoms, right? It's not true. It's just it's just a lie. And we we wouldn't want anybody to starve our family just for the greater good of us to get rid of Trump, right? I mean, is that what we want the whole world to do to us if you don't like Trump, for example? We're just going to sanction and starve America until we, you know, bring them to the knees and they overthrow them and put whoever hero next little, you know, scapegoat uh, in chief to be put in next. I mean, this is stupid. We don't sanction, we don't sacrifice human flesh and blood um, because we don't like the leadership that they have. This is a process and it's something that I think cultures that are not as inflected and and, I mean not as infected with Christianity, it's going to take some time for them to work out their political systems to make them, I mean, we're, we're, look, we're we're no country to judge at all, but, but it's just, it's a story. It's a story process. It's a culture process where your culture, and if you want to get rid of a bad government, your culture has to lose its appetite for strong governments based on sacrifice. And how do you get that way? You have to have a culture that is constantly uh, being inundated with stories about the idea that Jesus said it's it's God desires mercy, not sacrifice, and, and a story that always tells the vantage point of the person who lays down his life rather than uh, sacrifice. That's what happened in you know the movie. Of, and, and and globalism is spreading this Christian and uh, this Christian aesthetic on a subconscious level all over the world very rapidly. Because I mean that's why the Avengers is such a big hit. I mean it's a global hit. But every one of those big top box office movies are all myths. That are seasoned, or if you want to say another word, they're infected by this Christian concern for not sacrificing your opponent. By you know, in the end of Avengers, someone has to lay down their life as in order to destroy the enemy. He doesn't. He doesn't make the, He doesn't strike the enemy down, and um, that's a unique story of Judeo-Christian tradition, and it has an effect on how that culture slowly but surely, starts to see, oh, wait, we need to have a protection for the individual. Oh, wait, that means we need to protect the person against the crowd when it comes to whether they're greedy or whether they have you know, bad speech that's uncomfortable or they, or they think a different theory about science or, they, or they, you know, they pay their wages below the minimum wage we've decreed or, or they do a drug we don't like or they, they, they do sex work or something like that. They have to get to that point. And that happens through the transmission of storytelling, which undermines myth. And myth is all about concealing and justifying might makes right. It's all about concealing and justifying uh, the monopoly use of violence uh, to maintain a sense of transcendent unity and peace and, and uh, identity. So that's, you know, that's what has to happen. It's all these cultures are going to work this out in different And different stages of of our history that we're going through, and it's it's that that story uh, of of the um, of the one uh, refusing to um, to accept the accusations of the crowd that Jesus gave us. That story of the Gospels is going to continue to infect and undermine systems of strong governmental power all over the world by globalism, by the downstream effect of of that Christian motif and theme infecting even the storytellers of our Hollywood movies and, and that kind of thing. So it's, it's like these structures, again, the, the, the bumpers of history are coming off and they're coming off at different paces depending on how long cultures have been steeped in this particular story. And we have a radical choice, what we're going to do in the midst of that. Right. So go for it. I was just saying, it's not like we're on autopilot here. <laughs> we have a radical choice about how we're going to work this out. And just because I'm not saying that the West is like not as violent because it's had this Christian story. you know, I understand that it's, it's used the advanced technology that they've been able to discover because of their um, weaning off of older forms of scapegoat violence it 's used its technological advantage to do um, more pernicious and exploitive acts of violence against other countries, no doubt, yeah. but that's just the process of humans they're very slow to let go of of violence and collective violence
0: right well there's also this fear that if if you don't they will destroy you like you if you, if you're too kind, you will be taken advantage of and and the, the you know the specter of Hitler only seventy years years old. Or uh, seven years ago, uh, or eight years ago, uh, prevents presents sort of that that challenge. At any time. Right, but
1: I mean, you know, like, what? Why do we go into World War One? That was just a, a total sacrificial insanity. I mean, I, that movie by uh, Peter Jackson, you know, they will never grow old, which was just World War One footage uh, recolorized and, and restored, and they just show the battle footage. I mean, it's just it's just an absolute stunning uh, meat grinder of sacrificial madness. Um, but the people at the time, they really believed in it. and They sent these soldiers to die as sacrificial fodder for some insane Machiavellian might makes right religious desire, which is what government is. And so what happens in the after fact, right? It creates this condition for Hitler to be blowback for that, right? right? So do you see how that's a mimetic reciprocity? So sure, yes. Obviously, if you could, I'm not against, I'm not a pacifist. If you know, you know Bonhoeffer, you know, these people were trying to get rid of Hitler. I think, it, you know, is that sacrificial? I don't know. I mean, it, it, if he's engaged in acts of violence if you have the ability to to physically restrain him, meaning the only way you're going to physically restrain him is kill him because you ain't going to arrest him and get him out of his castle without everybody killing him. You know what I mean? If you're trying to be an assassin, I think there's, a, there's an argument to be said for that, right? But the idea is uh, defensive force, in my opinion, is not scapegoat. Um, but, but the problem that comes with that is that people start, once you give them an inch, they want to take it a mile and say, okay, therefore we can invade Saddam Hussein. No, you can't. Because what'd you do? You did nothing but create more chaos and more violence. Um, and, and why do we always quote Martin Luther King and all these people that are talking about Jesus? And yet we don't actually apply it to anything that relates to our real life. You know, it's like, we always quote that little meme, you know, hate cannot drive out hate. Violence cannot drive out violence that, that Martin Luther King says. And then we don't even apply it, you know? It's like, well, wait a second, Saddam Hussein's violent, so let's go invade him, and then that'll solve it. No, violence will not drive out violence. So why did we even do that, you know? It's because, we're, you know, we, we, we just surrender, and we're just hypnotized by um, this bystander effect, this collective bystander effect, to just trust these high priests that we call politicians. And by the way, in ancient times, the priests could be sacrificed too, right? If they did the ritual wrong, right, they could be sacrificed. You know, and just imagine Chris Farley, a Chris Farley character, trying to go along with the ritual of sacrifice, and they and they knock over the sacred bowl of, of and trip over the knife, and the knife dangles down and falls down, and the whole ritual is just totally ruined. You know, that's what Trump is, by the way. <laughs> so that's what he's he's ruining the sacred aura of the state. And that's why most of the common attacks against him have to do with he's just not presidential, <laughs> which means he's not hiding the knife of the state. Good darn it. Yeah. It's, like, it's like a movie. He's turning on the light during my favorite movie. And it's like yeah. imagine going to a midnight premiere of Star Wars at, back when those movies were coming out. And you have Yoda come onto the scene and he's fighting or something. And the crowd, the, you know, the, the hardcore fans are going nuts and someone just turns on the light right when that happens
0: right well, you know that's it's, it's what it's, Trump did the politics <laughs> it is interesting uh, going back to the Martin Luther King quote you you mentioned it's hard to know whether to take that quote you know literally or 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 take that as, as a literal quote or sort of a, a, a normative or predictive quote like or ideally the world would be this way and not just that quote but also the quote you know the arc of the universe bends towards towards justice is, is that a literal quote is that is that a normative quote or the quotes like you know first shall be last last shall be first I, I guess that's more more normative, but sometimes it's, it's hard to know, you know, even with Gerard, like how much of this is, is literal rooted in fact or rooted in biology versus, uh, versus something that, that we wish were true. And that's why when well, it comes to shove, you know, we, we go towards violence because we think that will actually work. <laughs> and maybe well, does
1: Right. Well, but I mean, so if we, so if we adopt this idea that we have to keep initiating violence before somebody else gets us, then by what standard can we ever condemn any act of, if we say, look, we have to uh, sanction or or bomb uh, someone like Saddam or Assad because of what they are doing to their people or what they could do to us down the road, that's that preemptive violence logic behind drug war, right? The idea is if I, I, I have to put this person who's high on heroin into a cage with actual violent people where he may be assaulted or she may be assaulted. And I have to do that because it's better that that one man or one woman perish for the sake of the many. And if I don't, they might get high and they might run into a home and go crazy and steal something, or they might hurt their kid. So we have to preemptively always initiate the sacrificial mechanism in order to try to stave off potential future violence. But it's always a lie, you know, because, again, I have a place for defensive violence. I think if a country is trying to invade us, I don't think it's sacrificial violence for a family to, you know, um, you know, put together a, a plan to, um, you know, be a part of a war effort to defend their, their country from being terrorized and, you know, assaulted and raped. I mean, if someone's attacking someone you love, it's not an act of violence for you to grab the attacker, put them on the ground, you know. And if they're struggling for a gun and you have to get the gun and it goes off and it goes on them, I don't think you did anything evil in that act. You're, you're doing what you can to physically stop the 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 assault and the violence against someone. But, uh, but then you can't extend that to mean there's somebody in another neighborhood that looks real ugly and, and dangerous, and they're hurting their family, I heard. They're abusing their family. So I'm just going to go into their house and kill them. That's what we're doing with foreign policy, right? Someone's hurting our family, like Assad's in another neighborhood. He's a bad guy. Here he's beating his his family. So we're just going to preemptively go in there and shoot and kill Assad and take him out. We have no idea about the context of what that's going to do when we do it. We just think we're God and we're the sacrificial avenger of the whole world. That go- that government is a mess- messianic type of sacrificial force. And so therefore it has that kind of privilege to do that.
0: So it is interesting. You, you, you use the term throughout anthropology. And I'm curious why you use that instead of biology or evolutionary biology. I guess I'm just curious to what extent to, are there people who disagree with Gerard on biological or evolutionary biological terms that, that you find are sympathetic with?
1: Well, well, what's a biological uh, based argument that that kind of contradicts the idea that you have to stop engaging in, um, reciprocal acts of collective violence. I'm, I just want to know. I mean, in particular, can you think of something? Because I,
0: I, I um, don't have the um, this uh, the the argument against it as much as I'm asking. Is there by allowed, it, it, Intuitively, it sounds very true, <laughs> and right. and uh, you know, uh, and I, I'm a believer in it. And I'm, I'm pressure testing it. Uh, is sure, there? Yeah, no. It's for it. I guess. Is the burden of proof to prove against it, or is the burden of proof to prove for it?
1: Well, I, again, yeah, I don't. I don't I'm sure there's you can poke holes in it. I think um, I'm trying to think of a good...
0: Um, Even within the Girardian scholar camp, what are the major disagreements, if any?
1: Well, I've noticed that a lot of them seem to kind of assume that, that the state, they, they kind of acknowledge that it has a sacrificial component, but it's like a necessary sacrificial institution that we have to kind of live with and just try to ideologically reform it. So I've noticed there's a left leftward tilt a little bit within some of the fans, but I see a lot of, there's a lot of variety. So again, and see, I want you to be clear. I'm not saying the answer is abolish government tomorrow. It's just, we have to culturally lose our appetite to purge this ugly behavior out of our lives. We are cultural cannibals. We're cannibalizing each other all the time we want to have more money, we get 10 million, we want 50 million, we want a billion. Now we got a billion and we look at the guys making 90 billion, So I got to get to that level. <laughs> it's never enough. It's just cannibalism, just consuming, consuming, consuming. It's like drinking salt water to, to quench your thirst. It's just, it's just, it's a fool's game. It's only going to make you thirstier. And that's what these desires do. They're like cannibalistic little attempts to try to consume the being of another. And we do that in relationships. We use people as tokens of status or or tokens of, of prestige or whatever. And uh, we consume their being and it, it, it leaves us unsatisfied and it leaves us depressed and anxious. And so we medicate out. We, we numb ourselves from this, this existential despair that the more money we have and the more acclaim we have, we feel just like Elvis Presley, who said, I get so lonesome in the middle of a crowd, you know, here's the King and he's lonesome as hell. And that's how we all feel. The more power we get, the more material, mimetic um, uh, conquest that we achieve. It feels good, but then it always has this little after, this little uh, hangover feeling where you just, uh, just not enough. It did not give me what I thought it would give me when I saw the models having it that I think I achieved parity with, you know? And that, that cannibalistic matrix of one-upmanship that never ends, Jesus is saying, look, don't devour each other don't do like your ancient ancestors that richly cannibalized each other just eat me be me be me and watch how it will positively spread contagiously in your life in your relationships and your job and in your society you know if if you're a, if you're a ceo of a company and you're you know modeling narcissism or passive aggression or, um, you know, delusional, you know, kind of, uh, you know, obsessions with things that are, that are not really for the best interest of the mission of the company. I mean, you're going to, you're going to create a mimetic culture of people around you that are going to, you know, keep that, 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 that pattern going. And it's not, it's going to rot. It's going to poison the, the workplace environment over time. And uh, that's, you know, so that's something you have to think about. You, you see what I mean? You don't have to be Mother Teresa in, in, overnight to, to practice imitating self-sacrifice.
0: There are t- two big questions I want to, I want to close on. One is, is this quote, you know, we have a uh, godlike technology, medieval institutions, and paleolithic emotions, And so the question is, do you sort of upgrade the, uh, you know, try to work on the emotions or or on the institutions? And one sort of thing we haven't talked about as it relates to scapegoating that some people think may make it easier uh, for us to improve this aspect is sort of changing identity from something that's, you know, full name and explicit to something that's more pseudonymous uh, and fluid and sort of makes it more difficult for cancel culture to to take place. Do, Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: I mean, I think it's a great it's a great option. The problem with that becoming like the, the main way we all solve a lot of this stuff is that, it, to me, it it reminds me the only thing I could see there was the uh, the sacred games and rituals that would be done prior to a sacrifice, and that would be um, so so in an ancient community. Again, you've got this primordial scapegoat murder that is the founding mechanism by which all these different ubiquitous cultures in ancient primitive hominid uh, cultures kind of fall into. It could be like, you know, there's evidence of, uh, you know, ritual cannibalism of a fallen alpha chimp. So we can see proto um, sketches of this mechanism in animals that have more mimetic wiring closer to us, but still far away from our, our ability to mimetically, you know, do things. Um, so then we see the pyramids, which look like a grand pile of stones, right? So they give us a clue, these pyramids all over the world in these ancient communities. There are what's in the middle of them? Um, a dead body, a, a king, which is also a god. And so Rene Girard says, we, we didn't in, humanity didn't invent our gods. We deified our victims, right? And so that's what we've done. And all these monuments of power and structure uh, at the roots we find hidden human sacrifices. I remember recently they, did, they looked at the top of the mountain where Greek legend has it that Zeus was born. And they found the remains of a teenage boy at the top of it. And I like to point out that therein lies the grandeur of Zeus and all of human anthropological glory. A hidden, shivering teenage boy, maybe in front of a lightning storm one night, dying for the good of his people. And Jesus has come to expose that lie. And I'm not saying that, look, guys, I know you may be uh, concerned that this is a religious thing, but I'm trying to tell you, this is an anthropological reality. Jesus' story was about uncovering the hidden victims of all of our cultures. And by working our way out of that system, not in a revolutionary, violent flipping of things like the, some of the uh, ideologies want to do in modern times, but rather in a kind of a, a bold, courageous, snapping out of the bystander effect of going along to get along into saying all this nonsense just because we want to fit in with uh, fashionable trends of blame and shame and, and casting our shame onto the backs of a, of a convenient enemy. Because guess what? It's not only bad, but it won't work because of the story of Jesus. It's going to continue to infect and shape and undermine our ability to create unanimity. But the idea of using a pseudonym The thing I don't like about that as a, as a solution for is I feel it's kind of like a stopgap, because again, it reminds me of the rituals that that societies would do in remembrance of their primordial scapegoat mechanism that they unconsciously stumbled onto that their ancestors did. So you stumble onto this mechanism that relieves tension by killing a common enemy. And then over time it's orally remembered and, and it's told through stories, and it becomes a mythology. And so the scapegoat becomes a god because he brought the people together. He united the people in a transcendent way. I mean, he gave you that wonderful feeling that you feel, again, when you're a kid watching Star Wars and the bad guy's beaten, and you're like, wow, that relief is a godlike transcendent feeling that people felt in a much more primordial and visceral way in ancient times. So eventually that story is told in myth and it's mythologized, and it's projected into the sky as God's doing these things. But the ritual sacrifice would always usually take place after um, festivals. And a festival would be like a carnival, or where they would um, wear masks, and they would dance, and um, they would have orgies and feasts. These are all acts of undifferentiation, right? If you have a feast, and you don't know who brought who to the feast table, uh, it's an act of undifferentiation because one guy could have brought a yam, and the other guy could have brought a whole turkey or and a, and a whole suckling pig, and another woman brings a big old you know a tray of of uh, large amounts of food, and it feels like one person was a stingy person, the other person was contributing more. That's a crisis of undifferentiation that can cause conflict when it's done on a regular basis, right, daily basis. And so when you are talking about the pseudonyms, I'm not saying that's the intention, but I feel like it may actually open up an opportunity for more bullying, more nastiness and, and more awful things being said online when people have that anonymity, when they don't have the skin in the game because it, it's going to create this undifferentiation in which people can kind of let loose and right. partake in orgies of aggression and nastiness and ego trips and stuff. And there's no consequence. And so they would do those undifferentiation rituals and then they would conclude it with a ritual sacrifice of a person. And, um, That was a recreation in a microcosm scale of a process that they stumbled into through hundreds and thousands of years of, of cultural memory. You see what I mean?
0: You know, and that's, you know, fairly short term, but while we are talking about, you know, the future here, and we have mentioned how much, you know, the world today is still very much inspired by religion as you know, uh, zoom out, you know, there've been, uh, you know, species before humans and there will likely be species after humans and whether that's, you know, uh 10,000 years from now, you know, 100,000 years from now, 1,000 years from now, 100 years from now, hu- humans will ha- will have their place in, in society. L- likely may- maybe you disagree about this, but I'm curious if we will need new mythologies um or 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 how our existing mythologies will will adapt to handle AI uh and some of these other technological innovations that we don't know how to make sense of today, yeah. except that they come if and when they come.
1: Well, I'm sure there's a lot of uh, really smart Uh, non-religious, sophisticated people that would love a a AI God to worship. (laughs) I'm sure, sure, you know, they're just waiting, you know, why do we, why are we so sure that we we figured out that um, again, I've been talking about Jesus from an anthropological level. And that means you don't have to have any invocation of a God, but why are we so sure that, you know um, you know, we really are the penultimate entity of the universe and, And the only thing we can do is unleash an AI beast that will probably devour us at some point. I just think it's so um, a product of our times that we should be very skeptical of that, you know, that we should be very open to the fact that we barely know anything about the natural world. I think we're totally going to find out that so much of the foundation of our sciences, we have this tradition of role models that present themselves as agnostics or atheists or people who are, you know, not prone to superstitions like the belief of of a God that created the world or whatever. And so because our society believes that the smartest people in the room uh, who have been at the forefront of scientific laws or discoveries, uh, because most of the smartest people in the room of our recent history are not believing in God, therefore, you know, if we want to aspire to be smart and sophisticated, we would be well to kind of imitate and mimic their uh, assumptions as well. I just fundamentally reject that. I just fundamentally reject that. I think we bake in all this expectation of despair into our pictures of the future. But I think we shouldn't look at the future as radically optimistic or, or, or despair. We should look at it as, wow, how can I unlock human anthropological understanding by studying mimetic theory and then understand how I can be a role model in my own life and then how we as a mimetic contagion of self-sacrificing people wanting to do good and right by their neighbor can work outside of politics to alleviate the conditions of suffering that has always been at the forefront of all of our minds, right?
0: Totally. Uh, David, this has been a phenomenal uh, interview. For people who want to get more familiar with their work, with your work, please uh, check out uh, David's YouTube channel and check out A Neighbor's Choice. Where else would would you point them?
1: Uh, yeah, go to a neighborschoice.com. You can email me, um, David at a neighborschoice.com. David at a choice.com. I do a radio program out of Orlando Monday through Thursday in the uh, evening there, and on, that's on FM and AM. But you can follow the videos on my YouTube channel. I publish some of the interviews there. And uh, yeah, I've got a lot of uh, really interesting series I'm gonna release soon. That's a video series, a long form discussion.
0: David, thank you so much for for coming on. It was really great to get to know you and I look forward to uh, continuing the conversation.
1: Very good. Look forward to talking to you again too.
0: If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash networkcatalyst.